from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. They have money at, at their disposal. They still have weapons. They have material that they can use to build improvised explosive devices. Some of those are literally in caves. ISIS is making a comeback. U.S. Army Colonel Scott Rawlinson, spokesman for Operation Inherent Resolve, the U.S.-led coalition of 75 countries and five international organizations essentially kicked ISIS out of Syria and Iraq by October of last year. But they still have as much as a half a billion dollars. With that money, it, it does allow them to you know, support some of their operations. And he said they recognize what ISIS is trying to do. We're going after their capacity. Uh, we know they want to come back. And to do that, it takes the ability to recruit people. It takes the ability to finance their operations. And Rawlinson says they're going to stand in ISIS's way. An update from Baghdad coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Since October of 2018, when ISIS was allegedly officially kicked out of Iraq and Syria, its caliphate said to be dead, it's continued to conduct attacks. In December of 2018, 42 killed in Russia. In April of this year, 253 killed in Sri Lanka. In August, 63 killed in Afghanistan. 22 in the Philippines in January. Another six in Iraq just this week. So without a doubt, ISIS is still a factor, even though some say ISIS is finished. On this program, we talk with Colonel Scott Rawlinson, spokesman for Operation Inherent Resolve, the U.S.-led military operation to stop ISIS. We talk with him about where they are in the process. Colonel, would you set the scene for us right now? We've been hearing a lot of very interesting things in the last few weeks regarding ISIS, regarding ISIS's strength, regarding ISIS's capabilities, regarding right. uh, you know what 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 might happen in the future. Tell us what the situation is today. Well, to put in in a perspective. Uh, October will actually be uh, a milestone for us. We'll be hitting the fifth year of the campaign against Daesh. Uh, in the last year, uh, really in the last few months, you know, March 23rd, uh, you know, the, 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 the territory that they once controlled, the so-called caliphate, uh, was finally liberated. Um, Daesh lost any control of territory that they had. Uh, and we knew really before the end of the territory that they were going to move whatever resources they could underground and continue to try to operate. Um, and, you know, they were a learning organization. Um, they, they knew they were going to try to resurge. Uh, we've seen every evidence that they are trying to resurge. They try to exploit borders. They tr try to exploit uh, areas that are hard to control, that are hard to, to uh, 
uh, really uh, uh, keep any kind of lid on necessarily. Um, and they are moving their resources out and they're continuing to operate underground as a disaggregated resurgent cell network. Uh, and our partners, the Iraqi security forces and Syrian democratic forces, are continuing to put pressure on them. They're continuing to look for them. They're continuing to uh, take the fight to them to try to contain that threat and make sure they don't really have an opportunity to resurge on a, on, a, on, a, on a large scale. It's important to note that while they're still out there and have every intent to resurge, they really lost their capability to conduct large-scale attacks. So they're, they're, they're focusing more on local attacks, on intimidation, on targeted assassinations of security force officials, local leaders, civilians, uh, to try to you know, maintain their relevance. And uh, that's what we're focusing on at this point. We've moved away from liberating territory, and now we're focusing more on local security. Uh, and we're trying to build the capability of our partners to the point that they can contain that threat with local security. You said that they are operating underground in large part, and um, I'm wondering um, how, do, how does that existence work for them? Um, it's not literally underground, or is it? Well, yeah, literally and figuratively. I mean, obviously, they have, uh, they have money at, at their disposal. They still have weapons. They have material that they can use to build improvised explosive devices. Some of those are literally in caves. Uh, one thing to, to, to really flag is the Iraqi security forces have had a very focused campaign going on for a while now called Will of Victory, and they've shown a lot of success. Uh, so far, they've searched about 1,700 square kilometers of space just in Iraq. Uh, and in that, they found a lot of uh, bed-down locations or uh, really caves where they're keeping a lot of the material, but also the, uh, the, 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 the people who claim to be Daesh are... Uh, you know, hiding in areas that uh, that are again that are hard to control, and they're staying away from urban areas as much as they can. Um, but uh, they're not; they don't put up a large physical signature that indicates, "Hey, Daesh is here." They're staying hidden as much as possible until uh, they see an opportunity to, you know, conduct a, conduct a, a, an attack or intimidation. So for example, uh, recently there were uh, crop fires, mostly in the north of Iraq, uh, and we believe that they were setting some of them. And again. Just an intimidation tactic to uh, to try to keep the population from um, from resisting. You know, I've heard recently that uh, this organization, and you mentioned it, they have money. I've heard recently, and uh, it was from the Institute for the Study of War, uh, and a couple of other places that uh, some have said that there are reports that ISIS is literally digging up money that was buried some time ago. Have you seen any evidence of that? Um, they have maintained, or rather, they've been able to keep some of the the money that they've gotten through different means, through extortion. Obviously, when they lost their territory, they lost a considerable portion of their ability to generate revenue. Um, but, you know, it doesn't take a lot of money to build improvised explosive devices. So they're hiding them in different places. Uh, and that's one thing we're going after. And really, what's what we talk about Daesh numbers and, and people that are Daesh members, but I think what's really important at this point is we're going after their capacity. Uh, we know they want to come back, and to do that, it takes the ability to recruit people, it takes the ability to finance your operations, uh, it takes the ability to, you know, to spread your ideology to different parts, uh, and that's really what we're focused on. So the number of Daesh fighters is really less important than their ability to come back. We know they're going to do that. 
and we're, we're doing everything we can to get ahead of them to keep that from happening. And the Iraqi security forces uh, and the SDF have shown remarkable progress in, in making that happen. So even though you don't, uh, even though you, as you say, the the number really isn't uh, that important at this point. Do you have uh, an idea of of what kind of numbers uh, they command at this point? Well, I, I don't mean to dismiss the idea of the numbers. Um, uh, and you know, one Daesh fighter is really too many. Um, and I really wouldn't even want to guess. It's very hard to guess something like that again because they 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 do stay hidden. Uh, but where, really what I want to get across is the fighters that are out there, our partners are going after, and we all collectively, and this is a whole government approach, is really focusing on keeping them from being able to grow. It's really important that they do that. And if you go to the, the uh, you know, uh, uh, an analogy of cancer, um, you know, you can surgically remove a cancer, you can use uh, chemotherapy, but really the, the most effective means is teaching the body to reject it. And that's, that's ultimately what we're trying to do. Is it safe to say that their followers numbers in the in the thousands, or would it be tens of thousands? I, I would say some thousands, um, and then they're, it, yeah, some thousands, but they are disaggregated. Mm -hmm. uh, so while they may have a certain number, they don't really have the ability to congregate and uh, really amass their effects. It's still very disaggregated. Mm -hmm. And the money. Um, one more thing on that. One report that uh, I got indicated that uh, after last October, the group managed to save hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something that you were tracking? No, I've seen similar reports. Uh, at one point, they controlled several billion dollars. Uh, and I think the latest report I saw was roughly about that, between like 200 to 300 million. I couldn't tell you specifically what it was. Um, and the with that money it, it does allow them to you know support some of their operations and that is a very focused effort is finding uh how they're moving money around uh they are finding it more difficult to move money around and that's that's the goal is we want to make it difficult for them to uh to use the resources that they have stored away to conduct operations secretary of state mike pompeo said um the 20th of august when asked uh, about um about the possibility that, that, that ISIS uh, could still be a very deadly and dangerous a threat that could come back. Um, he said, it, quote, it's complicated. There are certainly places where they're more powerful today than they were three or four years ago. What can you tell us about what Operation Inherent Resolve believes about their power and the possibility uh, to do what Secretary of State Pompeo said, um, be more powerful than they were three or four years ago? Uh, absolutely. I, I would I absolutely concur with what he said. I think uh, one way to measure power is uh, in uh, the ability to learn and adapt. Certainly in the five years of this campaign, uh, ISIS has figured out different ways to operate to try to stay out of, you know, stay, stay off the radar to make it harder to operate. So in that sense, they, they do have that. And, and you're right, in some areas, they've seen more success than others. Uh, but what's really important, too, in the, in the uh, other point that was uh, made by the secretary is, the, the pressure that's being put on them is going to keep ultimately keep them from resurging. Uh, we are enabling our partners to be able to do exactly that. And while ISIS might have learned a few things over the years, so have the ISF and the SDF, and they're, they're employing what they've learned to, uh, to keep them from coming back. When you look at where the coalition is going, it was my understanding that uh, recently there were 80 countries in the coalition. Is that number still intact, or where does that number stand? 
Well, it's actually 75 nations and five international organizations like NATO and Interpol organizations as well. And uh, that's, yes, 80, 80 members of the coalition, the largest coalition in history. Uh, and I think that's a testament to uh, just how the world sees Daesh. They see this as a, uh, as a, a threat. Uh, they realize that Daesh doesn't respect borders. Uh, we've all come together with this collective mission to defeat Daesh, and that's what we're focused on. What, what actually is being done to neutralize ISIS? And, you know, the reason I ask that question is because ISIS is actually more of an idea. Well, from a purely military perspective, um, partnering, advising, assisting, training, building the capability. I mean, just over the last five years, uh, we've trained roughly, just on the, just in Iraq, just 220,000, uh, roughly, Iraqi Security Force members, and that's from foot soldiers to fighter pilots. Uh, building the capability, you know, we've divested uh, approximately a little over $4 billion uh, worth of uh, material services and support to the broader effort. Um, and really, on our side, the focus is on security. So exactly what we described earlier. Uh, the emphasis was on the defeat of the territory they controlled, the so-called physical caliphate. That's occurred. We understood that they were moving underground to try to resurge, uh, so we're following any sign uh, that indicates where ISIS, I'm sorry, excuse me, where Daesh has moved and how we can keep them from coming back. But ultimately, there's no military solution to this. Uh, it's going to take a whole government approach. You're right, the ideology is, is central to them. Um, and that is going to take all of us, really, is, is to try to understand um, what people, the, the, the vulnerable population that might see Daesh as uh, a possible way forward, you know, trying to help people understand that that's not the right way to do it. Uh, you know, currently with the, the members who've been detained, uh, the people living in, in, in the camps, uh, you know, that's going to take an international solution to solve. Um, and, you know, the SDF, specifically Al Hall and some of the, the prisons in, uh, in, in Syria, have done a commendable job keeping security there, but it's not a long-term solution. So the longer that uh, those cir those circumstances last, uh, the harder it's going to be to defeat that the idea. But ultimately, it's it's a fallacy. You know what they promised, they did not deliver. Uh, the only thing they delivered was death and destruction and misery. And I think uh, they're they're doing some of the the work necessary to undermine their own ideology, but, you know, certainly the international community would step in and help with, uh, you know, identifying those groups, reaching out to them, and also rehabilitating the people who had turned to them initially. Uh, and then broadly speaking, stabilization. You know, security is the first step. Uh, stabilization, stability, you know, other actors to be able to come into that space uh, and help the area get back to a sense of normalcy and safety uh, is going to go a long way toward defeating the ideology. What have you found to be the biggest challenge in achieving your objectives in terms of the neutralizing ISIS? I mean, not to, not to just restate, but uh, I would say the biggest challenge is, is, is the fact that ISIS is an ideology. Uh, that's really what they are at their core. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it, it, is, it is appealing to different people for different reasons. Um, and to be able to contribute to the broader effort to defeat that ideology is certainly a challenge. Um, and for our role, just only speaking as a, as a military, as a, as a soldier, frankly, um, it's not 
too hard to look back into recent history and see the uh, the atrocities committed by Daesh and, uh, and and be able to stay focused on on what that particular challenge is. But they are trying to research. You know, they are a determined enemy. Uh, we know they're going to come back. Uh, we know they're going to try to come back. Excuse me. Um, and to stay focused on them and to keep them from coming back, I would say, is uh, is what we can need to, con- to continue to focus on. And it's more of a challenge in some areas than others, but we're seeing success. You said earlier ISIS is no longer able to launch large-scale attacks there. What have you mm-hmm. taken away from them that prevents them from from doing that? I think the... The emphasis on intelligence-driven operations, um, the ability to find them, the ability to uh, to prevent them from coordinating together, because these large-scale attacks do take a lot of coordination. They take collaboration, something that they just can't really do in the open, maybe like they did at one point. Um, I, I I think anyone who lived through it, who actually you know survived. Uh, living under Daesh control, uh, they see the signs. Uh, they understand what, you know, what could happen if they come back and, and it's, it's gonna be more difficult for them to even get tacit support. So that's one of the reasons uh, we believe that they are focused on these local threats is one, to, to maintain their own relevance and two, to try to intimidate the population into, uh, into tacit support. And, and I think that's gonna be more of a challenge for them. So. Broadly speaking, the ability to coordinate is something they don't really have the freedom to do anymore, and that's that's the direction we're moving. Weapons. Where? What? What kinds of weapons are they using? Um, you, know, you know, they're not able to do the the big uh, the big bang kinds of things. But sure. um, so, what kinds of weapons are they using, and and where are they getting them? I'm not really. I mean, I can't really discuss where they're getting them, but uh, for the most part, they're using small weapons, using small arms, uh, you know, pistols, machine guns, uh, stuff that's fairly easy to hide, stuff that's fairly easy to transport, uh, and also improvised explosive devices. In fact, the, you know, after clearing the MIRV, excuse me, the Middle Euphrates River Valley, the Syrian Democratic Forces have been conducting back clearance operations really since March. Uh, they've uncovered thousands of pounds of IEDs. Now, that's the signature weapon of the of Daesh is uh, the improvised explosive device and, and just mining everything that they use to be able to, to you know, uh, injure or kill security forces who are trying to follow them. Uh, so they've gone back and they've cleared a, an enormous amount uh, just in the MIRV in the last few months, as well as they're continuing to detain uh, Daesh members uh, that are in the general area. Um, and uh, you know we're we're seeing some success there. Plus, we're also helping uh, helping people that live there and who are who are moving back into that area uh, know what to look for for the IEDs. So, uh, generally speaking, they're 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 fairly small. Um, they don't give off a large signature, uh, and it's really more for the symbolic value than it is necessarily the physical value. The leadership, Baghdadi. What can you say about the search for him and other leaders? Um. Certainly, if we knew where he was, we would uh, we detain him. Um, he uh, is. I don't think it's any coincidence that he appeared publicly after the clearance of the MIRV. Uh, but uh, he's not insignificant. But at the same time, he's not really running operations. Um, I can't really get into how anyone's going after him. But I will say that uh, the leadership of Daesh in general, uh, anyone who's able to direct attacks, were obviously focused 
on trying to take them off the battlefield, really any, any fighter. But the ability to direct attacks or to anyone that shows the capacity for being able to direct attacks uh, are, are clearly high on our priority list. Uh, and Baghdad is certainly on there. But uh, as far as how we're specifically going after making it. That's, that's obvious because of the uh, operational security, et cetera. Um, yes, the, the leadership itself, um, and a lot of top ISIS leaders were taken off the battlefield uh, prior, to the, prior to last October. What does the leadership look like now? The sort of the, the nature of how they're operating now, they're, they're disaggregated. It's hard to coordinate. Um, I think they're spread out. They, they're certainly trying to, um, uh, to, to sustain themselves at the local level. I, I don't know that there's necessarily a strong network of leadership that is directing anything that's going on right now. I think mostly it's uh, just try to stay relevant, uh, try to you know, finance yourself, try to you know, uh, resource yourself as well as you can in, in, in your area. Um, with the intent to maybe look for weak spots and to, to focus on resurging in certain areas and try to come back at it. And, and that's the goal right now is just to stay, stay a step ahead of them. So essentially there are no names as big as a Baghdadi that are out there that's running this. It's just, um, you know, maybe uh, junior level lieutenants or, 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 or captains or I don't know. Um, what what's the stature of the people that are actually doing the day to day running of the organization? Not to be flippant, but uh, frankly, as far as we're concerned, they're all Daesh. Uh, okay. Doesn't really matter. I mean, there are obviously some leaders that maybe get a bit more attention than others, but no, I don't think there's anything close to uh, any name that's close to being as recognizable as Baghdadi. But but broadly speaking, they're all Daesh. You know, the ones that are actively trying to get the caliphate, so-called caliphate back, or Daesh, and those are the ones we're trying to stop. Communications. Um, one of the things they've been able to do over the years is to uh, generate a lot of sympathy and empathy from uh, people who, forgive me for saying this, like what they're doing uh, and agree with their, their, their objectives. Uh, one of the things that was very important uh, in, 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 the, in the early parts of the operation to to deal with ISIS was to disrupt their communications. How how does that uh, how's that going now? Is that still a priority? I, I think uh, they still try. They're going back to their playbook. You know, they want to generate um, followership. They want to generate interest in their cause. Uh, they have attempted to use social media to, to that end, uh, and that's going back to the idea of a whole of government approach. I mean, there are commercial entities out there. Uh, I think Google, for example, well, I, I don't know for a fact, but I think Google has uh, identified, uh, has a, a log, an algorithm that um, can identify if they think someone is an ISIS member. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, they are trying to use social media to get to a point where they were before. Uh, but again, their own, their own actions have undermined that. And you're right, there's a certain population that's going to be attracted to that. Uh, but I do believe it's harder for them to operate with impunity. Um, and I think more people are going to turn away from the ideology because of uh, what we know about them, what they know about them. Okay. Well, uh, Colonel Rawlinson, uh, thank you so much. Um, is there any, what is, what is it that I haven't asked you about that you think is important as we uh, talk about this situation? Oh, no, I, I, this is uh, really, 
and we've talked about this, but I just can't praise enough the dedication of our partners. Um, our role in this is quite simply to support them and enable their operations. Uh, the work that's been done to defeat Daesh has been done by the Iraqi security forces, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Uh, the people here understand the threat that Daesh uh, presents, and I think the world owes them a debt of gratitude for what they've done to to try to turn that back and to keep a lid on any kind of Daesh resurgence. So they absolutely are in the lead, and uh, we've, we've been very proud to partner with them in this in this broad mission. Okay, sir. Thank you. Thank you. That's Colonel Scott Rawlinson, spokesman for Operation Inherit Resolve, the U.S.-led mission in the Middle East to neutralize ISIS. And speaking of terrorism, coming up on our next episode. We do active shooter workshops almost on a daily basis somewhere in this country. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, a part of the Department of Homeland Security, and they are making a concerted effort to get after the problem of active shooters and soft targets. Brian Harrell is the Assistant Director for Infrastructure Security, and he joins Target USA to talk about all of the efforts they're making with their law enforcement partners across the country to stop active shooters and to shore up soft targets. On the front lines of that effort are the Protective Security Advisors. They have the ability, the subject matter expertise and the wherewithal to walk the property, walk the church, watch the, walk the synagogue, the temple, uh, that school, really understand what is that enemy avenue of approach? Where could a potential shooter come from and what to do about it? That, plus a story that illustrates why what DHS is doing is so important. I was in Charlottesville and meeting with the congregation there that sort of sat at the nexus of that white supremacist rally and Alan Zimmerman, who is the president of the synagogue, said to me, you know, as events were going on, he, he was standing there looking across the street. And the street's very narrow. It's maybe 30, 30 40 feet. At two guys that are armed with AR-15s, uh, wearing swastikas and Confederate flags. And he said to me, we, we just felt so alone. The place where domestic terrorism, the victims, and the Department of Homeland Security come together. Coming up on our next episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. That's jgreen at wtop.com. Follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you're interested in more international and national security news, subscribe to my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hi, this is Jillian with Court Junkie, a true crime podcast that covers court cases and criminal trials using audio clips and interviews. I'm excited to announce that I have formed a partnership with the Law & Crime Network and that Court Junkie will now be releasing episodes every week. Some episodes include the case of a man who admitted to dismembering his father's body, but who swears at trial that he didn't kill him. And the case of a woman who is charged with murder after she pushed her husband, causing him to fall out of a high-rise building. Court Junkie is available on Apple Podcasts and PodcastOne.com. Now, 
Stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.